How many of you have siblings? So siblings, all right. How many of you are the correct sibling, you're the first sibling in, in your family? So all right, all the first children uh, unite here. Now, the first kids, we have everything together. Uh, we keep everything in line. We, we make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know how much you subscribe to birth order theories, there's, there's science out there that says they're accurate. There's science out there that says it doesn't matter to anything. I'm, there's something to birth order. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's biological. I don't know how the Lord has, has created us in that way, but there's something to this birth order thing. Uh, my family, my biological family, so me and two younger brothers, and even our own kids that Amanda and I have had, they're playing right along with the birth order uh, idea. So first kid, type A, Everything's in order, take care of things. The second kid, my brother is, uh, he was the class clown as the second kid. I walk into a room and people kind of spread away. He walks into a room and people just draw into him, just like a people magnet. He draws people. People, he draws all the, the best out of people and just, it, it's incredible. It's amazing to watch uh, how, how he functions. And then you never really know what to do with the third, fourth, fifth kid. Like, they just kind of live in their own world. They do, they, they do their only thing. So the third brother, he doesn't look like us. He doesn't tend to act like us. He just lived most of his life in his own world um, and, and continues to do that pretty well. So you think about birth order. We think about the disciples. You have Peter and Andrew. Uh, Peter, as first child, seems pretty, pretty hard-charging. Uh, Speak first, think later. Then you got Andrew that comes along and, and seems to give us a different approach. Now, it's different with James and John. When you study James and John in Scripture, they seem to carry a lot of the same qualities. James is older. He's the older brother like we talked about last time, the elder brother. He's a pretty hard-charging, zealous figure. And when you get to John, you find very much of a similar idea that, that John, as he's portrayed in Scripture, is a, a son of thunder. He's one who's very hard-charging. He's one that's out there. He's wanting that throne. He's wanting that place of ambition. But you find over his life how Jesus is shaping his heart, that he, the very zealous, becomes the beloved disciple. He, interestingly enough, is the only disciple that we have accounts from history who was not martyred for the faith, but died, presumably, of, of natural causes. James, his older brother, on the other hand, is the first martyr of the disciples. So how interesting, two brothers who seem to have quite a bit in common, one is the first martyr and the other seems to have outlived all the disciples and aged into uh, a natural death. John becomes one of the key leaders in the early church, raising up some of the key leaders who would come after, uh, men like Polycarp uh, of Smyrna or Ignatius of Antioch. Some of these key early leaders learned from the Apostle John. I think John's story, and we'll come around this to the end, is, is maybe particularly interesting because it lets us ask a couple of questions. One, how does someone who in their early life is hard-charging, ambitious, wants the place of authority, wants the place of power, and yet later in life is humble, servant-hearted, defined by love, called the beloved disciple. 
How does that transition happen in life? And, and I've, I've proposed this question to you before just because it, it's something I think about so often. But think about the difference in a person's life. One person who, as they age, becomes more critical, more grumpy, more hard-hearted, and another person, as they age, becomes more humble and more gentle and more joyful. The difference in those two trajectories trajectories, those two lives. You see with John, someone as he, as he aged, he become more, more humble, more loving. Now here's the other thing I would consider about the Apostle John, just to think about. He wasn't a martyr, but I think his suffering comes in a slightly different version. Yes, he was exiled to Patmos, so that would have brought its own suffering when he was exiled and he has the revelation and he writes that. That was his own suffering. But in one of the commentaries I was reading about John, they proposed that his suffering was different because he would have seen the passing of all of his friends. That as he aged, his suffering came in the version of seeing his brother martyred and then to see all of these people that he lived with day after day after day, he outlived them all. And I think, obviously, I don't have the direct life perspective but what I do have is the perspective of a grandmother who sat me down one time and talked to me about the particular type of suffering that comes when you look around and realize that all your friends have passed away. And then she said, I'm too old to make friends. I'm not making any more friends. <laughs> she said, I'm done making friends. Uh, this is when she was in assisted living. We're like, Grandma, you should really get out and make some friends. I'm, I'm done making friends. I've, I've done that for, my, for 92 years. Um, but, but I just want to, I want to point that out because you think of someone and, and all of the elements, all the sanctification, all of the spiritual growth that's involved in aging well with maturity, love for the Lord, love for other people, growing in humility. And I think John is a beautiful example of that, that the beloved disciple outlived them all. The beloved disciple who grew up ambitious and hard-charging was known as a humble, loving servant. I just think that's a beautiful picture of, of what we get when we get John. Here's the other thing that I think that's so important in John's life, and then we're gonna jump in and look at these. Uh, John MacArthur, in his book on the disciples, lays out these different contrasts that, that John is known for, and in your notes, in fact, I think um, I've got these laid out there. Truth and love, ambition and humility, suffering and glory. Part of what defines John's writings in the New Testament Part of what defines John's life is the ability to hold these things together. <laughs> Love and truth, ambition and humility, suffering and glory. One mark of maturity in life is to be able to say at the same, thing, the same time two things that are true that can seem contradictory to other people. So let me give you some examples of this and, and how this marks Christian maturity. One element of Christian maturity, good theology, is to be able to say at the same time, Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully divine. Anytime we find ourselves fighting against those two, we lose core theology from Scripture. And so one mark of growing in good theology and Christian maturity is at the same time, you can understand Jesus is fully human and you can understand him as fully divine. Let's take uh, another example just to... Uh, just to play around with what we're doing on Sunday night and, and Sunday morning in Jaren's leadership, that you can say at the same time, hymns are a beautiful, valuable part of church music, and scripture says it's valuable to sing new songs. 
part of Christian maturity, Christian wisdom, is to say both of those are true at the same time. If we lose the hymns of the faith, we've lost something beautiful and valuable. If we don't continue to see how God is working through new songs that match up with Scripture, we also lose something valuable. Maturity is able to hold on to those two things. Uh, another element of this, and this gets a little stickier, but, but I think you'll, you'll understand it. It's a mark of Christian maturity to say that patriotism is a really wonderful gift. And we, and I think I speak for our church, value so highly our, our police officers and our first responders and the work they do, and we, we uphold that. And at the same time to have the maturity of saying, and there are people that have gone through terrible oppression and, and faced injustice and gone through difficult things, and one mark of Christian maturity is not being pulled to one of those extremes and being forced to say one and not the other. And so part of what God does in our life is he teaches us to hold on to these two things that aren't contradictory. They're both part of growing in maturity. And so the first contrast I want to look at is love and truth, truth and love. And we're going to begin in a surprising place. We're actually beginning in Ephesians. I know that John didn't write Ephesians, but I want us to begin there, and then we're going to track through. So Ephesians chapter 5 is where I want us to start here. Because Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, I said 5. Ephesians um, chapter 4 is where I want us to begin. There's a really great description there in Ephesians 4 of of this type of, of growth that happens. So let's begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So it says in Ephesians 4, 11, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So part of Christian maturity is experience all of who Christ is, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here's one of the great phrases in Scripture in in 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now there's a lot going on, obviously, theologically in those verses. But one core thing you find there is that the body of Christ, the church together, us individually, but the church together, will never grow the way it should if we don't hold on to truth and love. <laughs> we need both of those. Truth without love, what's that? Uh, it's, it's harshness, it's a judgmental, critical spirit. Truth without love makes you look like you're staying on the word of God, but you're really just driving people away. You're, you're speaking in a way that doesn't match the way of Christ. Love without truth, what good is that? <laughs> what, what do you have to offer someone if you just say I'm gonna be loving, but there's no truth behind it? What makes the Bible so powerful is this combination of truth and love. And, and we talked about this in our membership class this morning when I was kind of explaining who we are as a church. This truth in love lesson 
One area that we're just going to have to continue to learn this lesson and, and grow into it, and frankly, it's going to get way more complicated, is around issues regarding marriage and gender. Um, if you don't think that that's close by or you don't think we're dealing with that, just talk to your kids and grandkids, and they'll tell you quickly. Uh, they live in that water every day. They, they know what that's like. And issues around marriage and gender, if there's ever a place that the church needs to be defined by truth and love, it's gonna be on those issues. Uh, because sometimes on those issues, we've yelled really loud about the truth, and we've not shown the love and mercy and grace of Christ. And other times, we've looked particularly loving, but we haven't had gospel truth to go around. And so somehow, as the people of God, we're gonna to have to be defined as those who have truth and love. Where does this show up so clearly? First John, let's go to First John and see what John has to say about this. Now you could find many places in the Gospel of John, but I thought it'd be a good place to pick up the letters uh, of John on, on this topic, so you could, oh I'm sorry, you could almost turn to any passage, you know, just indiscriminately in First John and find this concept, but, but maybe a place like uh, 318, would be a good place, even 3.16, so 1 John 3.16, which funny enough is connected so closely to John 3.16. <laughs> so when you go from John 3.16 to 1 John 3.16, you're practically reading the same, the same content. So 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Then you go over to chapter 4, verse 7. First uh, John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And if you go down to verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us, given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse, uh, chapter five, verse two. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Isn't that surprising to see that there? <laughs> that love is tied to the truth of obeying the commandments of God. You go over to 2 John, short little book there. Um, watch how this begins in, in 2 John. The elder to the elect lady, the church, and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. John's just trying to get truth and love in there as much as he can. Uh, verse four, I rejoice greatly 
to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And then down in verse six, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. Look at 3 John. Not surprisingly, you're gonna find exactly the same idea, but look at 3 John as well. 3 John verse 30, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I know that's a verse that many of you uh, hold to and, and, and hold in a, in a very dear way. So John, what do we know about the beloved disciple? We know that the disciple John was characterized by holding together love and truth. We, as the people of God, want to be characterized in the same way. Let's not let go of either one. So, let's take it to the next set of con contrasts, or, or we shouldn't even call them contrasts, we should call them companions in some way. Uh, John MacArthur says of that next set, it's ambition and humility. Ambition, I would take you to Mark chapter 9. Let's look at Mark chapter 9, and we're going to find something about John's personality. Mark chapter 9 would be, um, we'll kind of be in the end of that chapter, so... Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And we know that James and John were actually the worst when it came to this argument. They led this argument a lot of the times. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, hey, you're going to be impressed. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following, what does it say there? us. <laughs> Notice what John is concerned about. John's concerned about who's lined up behind him. This guy over here, he wasn't part of our team. Now, he was casting out demons in your name, Jesus, but he wasn't following us. So, what did John say they tried to do? Uh, we tried to stop him. What does Jesus say? Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So we see again, John here is characterized by this zeal, this, this judgmental attitude, this critical attitude that we saw last week with, with James as well. He's, he's a man of ambition. He's trying to protect whoever is following behind them and missing what it means to really follow Jesus. Now contrast that for just a second with Revelation chapter one. So think about John, fast forward, what are you looking at? 50, 60 years maybe from, from this scene? Go to Revelation chapter one. And, and so 
John, the judgmental, tries to stop the competition guy from Mark chapter 9. You get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And here's how he describes himself. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What do you get in John's last days here? You get a man who realized tribulation, who was focused on the kingdom, and whose life was defined by patient endurance. Does patient endurance sound like the John you saw in Mark chapter nine? No, not a chance. Now, at this point, and I'll, and I'll, I'll give a caveat to this illustration so, so you make sure you hear it clearly. I look at my dad interacting with my kids, and sometimes I think to myself, is that the same guy? Like, is, is that the guy who, uh, who raised me? Um, the way that he's interacting with, with my kids, now, let me be super clear. My dad was wonderful to us. Uh, I, I had a wonderful upbringing. But let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> like he, was, he was strict, and, and he was pretty, pretty strong-willed. Uh, and now as a grandpa, I'm like, who in the world are you? Like, what? We would have never gotten away with that, and you, wouldn't, you never <laughs> interacted with us. Life does that to you. Uh, you think about it, you go through things. Um, you survived your own kids, and, and God gives you those grandkids, and you see them a little bit differently. But I do think a certain amount of that just comes from lived experience. It's not fair to say who my dad was at 35 is who he is at 65. Those are different people. You, you grow, you go through difficulties, you see life in a new way, a fresh way. But the beauty of it is John's life is not defined by this judgmental, really poor scene in Mark 9. He ends in this beautiful place of patient endurance, waiting on the things of God and wanting to be used by God. And I would just encourage you, over the years, just the prayer in your heart, God, let me grow into a loving, humble, patient, joyful servant of the kingdom. That's the direction I want my life to go. Um, and, and one of the things that's so good for, for me and my family is to be a part of a multi-generational church where we have people we can look at and say, that's the direction I want my life to go. That's how I want to relate to people. That's how I want to think about the kingdom. I want to grow in that direction. And so John, ambition's not bad. Don't we hear us say, ambition is good. The Lord used that in, some, in amazing ways. But ambition without humility, you'll always find yourself trying to protect your own way and build your own kingdom. Ambition with humility, all you want to do is serve Jesus, however he guides you in life. Okay, let's end up with this. The last contrast that John MacArthur points out I keep saying contrast, these are more companions, is, is suffering and glory. Uh, famously, the Gospel of John is divided in two halves. Uh, the first part of the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 12, is called the Book of Signs. You get those seven signs uh, you get a lot of the I am statements that are built into the opening chapters of John. You get a lot of this symbolism that's built up uh, to talk about the coming hour. And every time Jesus talks about my hour has not come, what's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the suffering that's to come, the cross that's ultimately going to lead to glory, the glory of God's salvation being revealed. So the book of John, the gospel of John, is divided chapters 1 through 12, is the book of signs, and then chapters 13 to 21 
is the book of glory. And what, John, or what Jesus has to teach the disciples over and over is first suffering, then glory. <laughs> they want glory, but no suffering. Uh, they're like the, the, the athletes who want the championship, but they really don't want to show up for practice or do anything to get there. And Jesus says, no, the way to glory is the way of suffering. And there's a really great passage in the book of Hebrews that encapsulates this. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 brings this idea to us here. Um, it's going to be around verses 9 and 10, I think, of, of Hebrews chapter 2. When I was thinking about suffering and glory, this is one that always, always stands out here. Actually, let's start back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. That'd be a good place to start. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, this is Hebrews 2, 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, a, a life of suffering living in this world, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, however, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's that famous already not yet reality we talk about. Now look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. First suffering, then glory. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What you find in John's life, what you find in John's writing, and what you find typified in Jesus is to remember that the path to glory leads through suffering. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And then you get to the end of Psalm 23 and you know that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when you find yourself in the middle of suffering, that's a good reminder <laughs> that this is not the end of the story, that the path to glory leads through suffering, that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, knowing that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Uh, when I was reading about John this week, it was said um, one of the early church leaders named Jerome uh, if Jerome's name stands out to you, Jerome is famous for translating the Bible into Latin. Uh, there's a famous translation called the Vulgate, uh, and Jerome is the one who brought the, the writings from Greek and Hebrew over to Latin and made the, the scriptures available to the church. Now, ironically enough, it got stuck in Latin and took a long time to get into the other languages like, like English and German and French, but Jerome was bringing the word of God to the people by translating it into, uh, into Latin. Now, Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus. John ends up at Ephesus and begins to pastor that church there that Paul founded. He finds himself at Ephesus. John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church and when he was carried into the church, there was always one phrase on his lips. My little children love one another. 
What a beautiful picture that is. This older man who loved the Lord all these years, who had outlasted his friends, was so frail that he had to be picked up and carried into the church. And every time he came to the church, all he said was, my little children love one another. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the Apostle John. Uh, Thank you for the writing. So many people who have come to salvation by reading the Gospel of John. Uh, It's been translated and, and made available in so many languages. And we think about those letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and what we learn about love and holiness and truth. And, and then we think about John on Patmos receiving the revelation and passing that on and, and the hope that is supposed to come through that book. And God, we think about John holding together love and truth, ambition and humility, suffering and glory, and to the very end of his life, saying, my little children, love one another. God, help our lives to be defined by love as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.